Welcome to this week's episode of the Science of Feeding the World. Today we're talking to Professor Akim Doberman, previously Chiefy Chief, aka Chief Director at Rothamsted Research, and now Chief Scientist at the International Fertiliser Association. The Grand Fromage, he's the, he's the big cheese, isn't he really? <laughs> oh, we got a full baby bell to come in. You are listening to a podcast. But what is that podcast? It's the science of feeding the world. Hello, welcome to the science of feeding the world. Uh, I'm Alex Dye, and today I'm joined by Hannah McGrath, Gary Fruit, and uh, today. Oh. Sorry, I interrupted you there. I, I was I wanted to give you a big intro. Oh. <laughs> We've got the big man on campus. <laughs> The Chiefy Chief, chief. Uh, the director formerly known as Akim Doberman. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah, so formerly known because you're finishing up here, you're retiring from Rothamsted as Chief Director, where you've served for, is it eight years now? Five and a half years. Yeah, five and a half. Okay, and um, during that time, lots of things. Oh, in fact, Alex, do you want to kick off with uh, your question? I'm going to kick off with the, the really big question that's sort of looking forward, which is... How do we achieve zero hunger? <laughs> it doesn't get much bigger of a question. Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, it depend, depends on how you define zero hunger. Statistically speaking, there will always be in any population in any world, part of the world uh, a certain degree of hunger if you define it as uh, some form of under or malnutrition. You know? So, so it, it cannot be completely eradicated. But... Uh, uh, there, there is a clear uh, intent to over the next, uh, let's say, ten to fifteen years, to eradicate the extreme forms of uh, poverty and hunger. And at the moment, we still have a little less or than a, a billion people who are classified as uh, not having enough uh, food to eat in, in, in the widest sense. You know, just mm. the sheer amount of it. You know, so that's that's the hunger of the usual kind. Uh, and doesn't really include the hidden hunger, which adds more people. Hidden hunger is uh, Mic- micronutrient deficiencies. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 but how do we get rid of this one billion? I think the good news is that uh, we have uh, made progress in the last few decades, both in terms of reducing absolute levels of uh, extreme poverty and hunger, uh, and as well as in certain countries faster than others. You know. So, but that is still. Not the given that this continues at the same rate, and as long as we have also in some countries, particularly in Africa, very high population growth rates, it's a sort of a, a never-ending battle in fields, you know. Mm-hmm. You know. So we keep adding more people, of course, and also makes it harder to keep feeding those people. You know. So in, in the end, it comes down to political will uh, to really change mm-hmm. these things, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, uh, long-term uh, strategies and investment and of course science uh, can uh, and innovation can play a role in this. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that you've had a very unique position to consider the role of science in delivering that that goal, that sustainable development goal. Um, a lot of it, as you say, is going to be political. There's going to be a lot of political decisions that need to be made, but what's science's role in achieving that? I mean, we in science have a, a responsibility to to work on solutions. You know, so of course you can spend your entire life in science working on things that enjoy you just for the sort of sake of the quest for knowledge. You know, mm. and some people get away with this. You know, no, I've never get been, away with it like it's a well, you know, you, 
in the scientific world nowadays, you can have a successful career, you know, just by meeting sort of normal sort of standards of scientific excellence, but uh, without actually ever making a difference, you know. So for me, it is very important that scientists and science as a whole work on real-world problems that either exist or will exist in the future, both mm. are equally important, and put even their uh, creative discovery minds uh, into that context and not just sort of try to find things that enjoy them. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you, so trying to find science that has an application, has that always been a motivation for you that, you know, when you're doing, or you kind of doing your own research or is that kind of something you've come to later so I think in the back of my mind, this has always been part of my life, uh, largely probably because I, I grew up in a farming environment and farming family. So we can trace our history of farming where I come from in Germany, you know, back to uh, 16th or 15th century. You know, so we've always been sort of medium-sized farmers over those centuries. What so, kind of farming? My we just uh, arable cropping and a bunch of cows and pigs and that sort of stuff. You know, was that so, kind of subsistence farming, or was that kind of you feed your family and then you had a bit more and you kind of got to sell it? No, know? in those days, uh, uh, it was considered sort of a, in our region a somewhat larger farm, twenty-eight hectares uh, of arable land and fourteen hectares of forest, and then some animals. Yeah, so and then of course, after World War Two because we were in the eastern part of Germany, it had to go through the collectivization process and became part of a much larger cooperative farm. So Did that, I don't actually know much about farming in East Berlin, or kind of East Germany after the war. Did that affect yields or anything like that? Was that... Um... It went through the same uh, technological development processes anywhere else in the world. So when... So I, I remember the... I was about 16 years old in 1977 when I sort of entered the world of professional farming at a stage where, where everywhere in the world we had a great level of intensification and modernization. So it was all about increasing yields with new mm. big machines, bigger fields, more fertilizer and pesticides. So, so the first degree that I obtained was actually a vocational a professional degree. It was called an agricultural chemist. So you did this uh, along with a high school degree. Uh, it took a year longer, so you spent three years on this. Uh, and so what we learned in that particular profession was, you know, uh, everything that needed to be done in terms of fertilizers and pesticides, you know, and drive all the big machines and spray the hell out of our crops and put mm -hmm. fertilizer on and load airplanes with stuff, you know. So so it was the time of, of, of this kind of farming. You know? We now know that uh, this level of intensification caused a lot of the environmental and sometimes also health problems uh, that we still grapple with nowadays. Yeah, but that's where I come from. And so I've always felt that, okay, farming is extremely important and science in particular can make massive differences in how we produce food and fiber and other stuff that we grow in our mm. fields or, or sheds. So, so I've always had that drive. I had a period in my life when I was a very young scientist, sort of, I would sort of, say part of my PhD and early post PhD science life was uh, I was drifting off into pretty esoteric things uh, <laughs> that kept myself interested but didn't really have a clear purpose you know I was getting very much carried away into geostatistics and the new 
methods <laughs> of uh, making beautiful maps uh, and you would spend weeks uh, I feel personally targeted <laughs> <laughs> I like what's wrong with that I'm awaiting the many complaints <laughs> from all the geostatisticians out there I did this for quite a few I did this for quite a few years and even uh, developed a course that I lectured about it yeah, so I was actually quite inspired by the work that came out of Rossumstead so Richard Webster's group in, in particular yeah. so mm. So, but uh, what I realized after a few years is, uh, so, so, who cares about my map? You know, so <laughs> I could spend three weeks making a map that was statistically a little bit better than the previous map. You know, but who cares about it? Hannah, so, Hannah is seething so, on herself. No, so, <laughs> what, what we've done. So, what I'm doing now is working with farmers to map the pests in their fields yeah. and again that's something that because of the work on the geostatistics here mm. at Rothamsted is that I get to send a whatsapp message mm. to a farmer in the UK and say here's that map from that field so you know using the kind of techniques that you've probably made a lot better yeah but this is exactly the point so so in those days that was much more difficult to do we didn't have some of the technology that you nowadays have you know so so, but for me, it became very clear that in the early 1990s, okay, I need to apply in these interesting techniques that I had learned, you know, into into the, in that sort of more pragmatic context, you know. So when I moved to the Philippines in '92, that was the whole purpose. So I knew that I was going to use all that stuff for the first time ever in a large landscape where rice was grown, you know. But really, it was the purpose to figure out whether I can use these geospatial approaches to improve the management of, of these fields. And this wasn't just one field, it was 20,000 hectares. So it was essentially about you know, 10 to 15,000 different little farmers. Mm. So and how do you then apply that sort of scientific approach to mundane questions? Okay, how much more or different fertilizer should they put on or not? You know? mm. And what's the longer term sustainability of their farming practices? Mm. So I got much more interested in that. I could still do beautiful science in that context and write the same kind of geostatistical papers, you know, but they they had a purpose at least, you know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So with, you work with rice in the Philippines? Yeah, so rice has been my lifelong sort of passion and some people sometimes ask me why on earth did I get interested in rice? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, I would ask why are you now here at Rothamsted with so much wheat? <laughs> and when I got asked this question, I said, well, rice is just another grass, like wheat, mm. or, you know, so, uh, but it's grown in a different way. I got interested in rice because of a very simple fact of the very first course I had to take in university was soil science. You know, I had never heard of anything like this before, so and it was immediately appealing to me. And then the professor would occasionally say, "Well, I know how this actually works here. We don't quite know, you know." And when we reached the mm. point that certain soils are underwater. He did explain in principle what was happening under when, when you put the soil underwater, but he also said there's a lot of things that are not quite known yet. And, and particularly weird was the fact for me that there are certain plants or crops like rice that thrive under those conditions, which mm. normally would kill others. You know. Yeah. So it was this fascination of the, the unknown, finding something well, totally new. Well, something known, and we knew quite a bit about how, why rice survives under those conditions. It has an arenchyma that allows it to pump oxygen from the leaves all the way down to the roots. Uh, so, but I, I found this fascinating. So I said, okay, I'm going to look into the chemistry and biochemistry of a soil that is flooded, you know. And if mm. I can do this with some plants, the only plants of choice were rice, and so I got into rice. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot in there to ask about. There, you, you mentioned the problems of intensification. Um, 
that had started to come in as you were farming in, in Germany. And nowadays, the solution isn't, people aren't talking about getting rid of intensification, well, some are, but it's about sustainable intensification. Um, but I guess it'd be good to ask a question about what are the big challenges? Is Where does intensification fit into that? And uh, yeah, what are the challenges uh, to feeding the world? Yeah, I mean the 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 term sustainable intensification has become a bit of a buzzword too. That's mm. quite stretchable, and the definitions vary. And I shall say that it is very much a Western term. Yeah, so it comes out of the Western scientific literature, mm-hmm. particularly the UK, US, and a few other countries. In many countries uh, of the rest of the world, you, you can't even easily translate this into their languages. It doesn't quite exist. Really? Yeah, it's very difficult to, for example, translate this into Chinese. You know, so so we actually have a problem already there that we can't. You know, we have uh, you know a certain image of this, which doesn't necessarily uh, match with what other people in the other parts of the world need. But. I think obviously the big challenge is still, and it hasn't really changed since I've been active, you know, or, or even for the last 60 years, is how we can feed this growing population without destroying the earth. It's very simple as that. You know? mm-hmm. so for me, it's become in recent years clear that this is primarily a macroeconomic challenge in a sense that we know, we know that the global economy will continue to grow simply because there are at this stage about six billion people who haven't fracked the right to catch up in terms of lifestyle and better quality of life with the one billion you had a decent life already you know so we cannot tell these people to to stop growing and and so that's the fundamental driver for the global economy so if it grows at the rate of three to four percent each year which it does for decades and then you triple the global economy every generation. So mm-hmm. at the moment it worth about ninety trillion US dollars. So think twenty years from now. So uh, when maybe you know the next generation uh, of of children that are born today has reached the age of eighteen or twenty, you know that global economy will be twice the size. It may be close mm-hmm. to two hundred trillion. And if you think we already have problems right. now in terms of environment, in terms of feeding, in terms of waste, in terms of whatever, these will be twice as big by then unless we fix it. You know, so. so after that breakdown, are, are you optimistic? No, I've always <coughs> believed that things can be solved, you know, and we've always been quite ingenious in, 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 as humans to come up with solutions. Uh, sometimes we do bad things uh, that then only get discovered a little bit later that they're actually bad, you know. Uh, but I think there's still a huge amount of innovation potential to particularly also address the question of uh, uh, not just how much or how we produce food and other things in agriculture, but also how we consume it. So one of the most interesting uh, conflict almost that I see at the moment is, and I don't have the answer to this, you know, so so we, we get to it, particularly in the Western world, all of a sudden that uh, we have been eating unhealthy diets for decades. Mm. So now everything is bad that we have been eating for decades. You know? <laughs> Wait, hang on. <laughs> you can tell me McDonald's is, is unhealthy. So we get told that we should be eating healthier or less, and particularly we shouldn't be eating any red meat anymore because mm. it seems to be the number one cause of destroying the planet all of a sudden. You know? mm. 
So, and then if, as the alternative, besides eating less and, and choosing better, we're now also presented with a very technology-centric vision. You know, people saying, okay, we're just going to build vertical farming factories. We're going to have lab-grown meat and mm. all of these protein replacement types of things that are essentially made in factories, biochemical mm. factories. People are talking about through precision fermentation making milk. So instead of having cows, just have you know a factory produced uh, mm -hmm. synthetic milk, you know. And I keep thinking, is that the kind of food we want? You know, mm -hmm. highly processed factory style food as opposed to actually less processed, simpler, reliably produced uh, food from a farmer. Yeah, and that's a huge conflict for me. You know? mm. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, I. I take that point as well is something that when I was doing my undergraduate I wrote a lot about naturalness and concepts mm. of naturalness in food and the fact that many consumers even um, will refuse a food if it's been genetically modified even if there's a clear health benefit so if, it, if they're told that this particular food will cure cancer if it's been produced in a certain way they will refuse it whereas if it's been produced naturally they will accept it um, and so, but what I, yeah. what I fear is that uh, right now, and it's also hyped up by the media, uh, people get excited about these sort of new food products and technologies, you know. And, and I understand that people want to experiment with things, you know, but I think it completely underestimates the, the cultural element and human behavior mm. element when it comes to food, you know. Mm. See, I don't want to sit in a restaurant 20 years from now and order a glass of synthetic milk and to, to wash down a highly processed protein bar that contains 25 <laughs> different things. You Everything know. you need in uh, a bar. I still yeah. want to probably have a, a, a very the same kind of dishes that people eat you know, mm. nowadays, you know. Yeah. But maybe... Uh, produced in a different way in a more sustainable manner so it's, it's more about for you it's more about having what we have now but finding a better way of doing it rather than changing everything mm. to make it more sustainable you know from the ground well, up that doesn't necessarily mean that it's better you know mm. this highly processed stuff uh, uh, I also personally worry about the you know, radical shifts towards veganism you know mm. Which actually, I believe, will create a whole new range of uh, malnutrition problems uh, if people go overboard with that, you know, mm. or don't do it right. Yeah. So, uh, and we have a tendency in the Western world to sort of go to extremes and then also to lecture the rest of the world of what is wrong, what mm. is right, and that I think is dangerous. It is. Yeah, and of course. It's common. I think that preferences. So, yeah. on that kind of line. Um, <coughs> There's there's a kind of a conversation about kind of genetically modified organisms, something like um, golden rice, which um, we know could potentially help with uh, malnutrition in certain areas. But from a kind of Western point of view, people like me can go around and say, but I don't want to eat it. Do you think there is a kind of um, kind of equity issue or a kind of almost neo-colonialism where someone like me would would go around and start telling people that um you know go, you know something like golden rice will fix it their their malnutrition problems but then i would i would refuse to eat it myself do you think that there's there's something along those lines so, yeah I, mean, I think there's a lot in there i mean the first of all people always need to be given choices in my view you should never dictate what is right or what is wrong but when it comes to food and mm. um, it's the same as other uh, choices you make in life you know we won't go around and tell you, no, you cannot buy an Apple iPhone, you should only buy Samsung or Huawei. You know? mm -hmm. Who does that? You know? No, we have, we have choices. Yeah. So, 
Um, unfortunately, the debate for some of these things uh, has become overly emotional, and GM crops is one of those. It's become completely uh, senseless sometimes. I've actually been quite a bit involved in the golden rice development in, in my role uh, as Deputy Director General of Erie. Uh, and we've never said uh, that it would solve the vitamin A deficiency problem uh, in Asia or Africa. We never said that, you know. What we said, and it's very clear, is that it would actually lift the base uh, nutrition level up of the poorest of the poor, who you never reach with any of the other uh, interventions that people are promoting, like, you know, why don't you have a little vegetable garden? Well, if you live in a slum in Manila, you don't have a vegetable garden. And you can't have it, you know. Mm. Or why don't we just feed these people with supplements, pills? Uh, the organizations who've been trying to do this for decades uh, just can't reach down to the last mm -hmm. people, and it's highly expensive here. So these are all interesting thoughts, but if you bring the base level up by en enriching if a stable food item, you know, you make a massive difference. You know? mm -hmm. And then you can still have all the other nice things on top of it. Yeah. I remember I talked once to a, a, a woman, a mother in, in a slum in Manila, and I asked her, look, we're working on this uh, golden rice thing, and explained what it is, and, and I said, would you feed it to your children? You know? And she said, look, you know, I would feed anything to my children that I know is more nutritious than what I can give them right now. And I don't care whether it is called GM or not. Yeah. 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 Wow. This is... So, unfortunately, I was, uh, I, had to, uh, I was part of the team that had to make uh, the tough decision in 2013, end of 2013, to actually uh, delay the further development of Golden Rise because the lead event that we were pursuing... Uh, wasn't quite pure enough in terms of its agronomic performance. It had nothing to do with the with the actual beta carotene. Yeah, it was just the field performance and was was a little bit erratic. And so we had to put it on the back burner and uh, go back to another event, and that has slowed down the whole project by about three years. Yeah. Mm. But they're back on track now, and uh, from what I hear, there's a very good chance that it may get uh, approval for release. Uh, I'm hoping. 2020 if not 2021 and probably first in Bangladesh so I do think we need these kind of solutions but they're not miracle or silver bullet things but as part mm. of a but they create you know, new choices and if don't we don't they? want them in the western world you're fine because we have all the other choices you know mm. we don't really have vitamin A deficiency here you know, no. as long as we eat a few carrots or mm. does this kind of uh kind of global hunger or uh, global malnutrition or um, micronutrient deficiencies, does that keep you up at night? I sleep quite well usually. You know, so you, you do worry about lots of things in life. You know, it's the climate, it's the hunger, it's uh, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it is worrisome. But as I said that, uh, some time ago, I mean, I always believe that these things can be solved. You know? And there, there are solutions already in sight you know and we, some of them just need a bigger push some of them probably are still at a very early stage of, of even imagination you know but uh, so no it doesn't completely let, let me uh, leave me sleepless I wouldn't say that yeah, because I, I'm always a firm believer that uh, humans can find solutions to these things yeah. um, to go back 
a little bit, you were kind of mentioning that you've mm. done a lot of field work then in Southeast mm. Asia. I wondered if you had a kind of, what was the funniest field work story? You know, have, do you, have you ever been stuck somewhere? Oh, well. Lost, <laughs> you know, you've left your wellies and, you know, what's the kind of, do you have a... How, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had many stories. Oh, yeah. For about five years, I ran what at that time was probably the largest uh, uh, farmer uh, on-farm field research network in the world. Uh, we had 205 farms in six countries. So just to visit each, which I always tried each year, twice a year, that took me about 110 or 120 days of travel. Yeah, so, so, and then of course, when you do these things, uh, 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 you always see and experience interesting things. You know, I have many stories. You know, I uh, once came to Indonesia and um, uh, while we were walking around, uh, my knee kind of snapped. You know, <laughs> so it was kind of snapped. Uh, it was an old football injury, injury. So I had a torn meniscus uh, cartilage in there, and that sometimes I would flap a little, flip a little bit, and then it, then the knee gets stuck. You know, mm. can, you can't really walk anymore. Yeah? So they got me a pair of crutches, and so I spent the rest of the day walking around the rice paddies in, in those crutches, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, uh, quite frequently, when, when you go into a rice field, even though there's no water anymore, you go in, you want to look at the you know, stuff. Uh, no, of course, you, the crutches sink into this. Yeah, yeah, and then you pull them out and the rubber stoppers are gone, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then Amadi has to come and dig the rubber stopper out. It's quite embarrassing. You know? so, so you do this for a whole day. And then as we were finished, we drove back to the airport in Surabaya in, in Indonesia. And they got myself a, a, a wheelchair to wheel me on the plane with these crutches. You know? And as a literally, as a... Well, wheeled me to the plane, and uh, I, I felt my knee coming back in. You know, it just flipped back. You know, <laughs> and so when we got to the plane door, I walked off the wheelchair like this. <laughs> I've been miracle killed. In the plane, the oh. people were thinking that I was simulating all the time. <laughs> it just happened. You know? so, and other stories uh, in India, I got stuck many times in dangerous situations. You know? So we actually, I think, at one time. Uh, uh, had an accident uh, in India where uh, we probably ran into a woman in a village and the driver, despite my yelling and screaming, would not stop because he said, if we stop, they're going to kill us all. Yeah. What? Uh, yeah, yeah, so uh, he would not stop here. So, and my Indian colleagues also said, go, 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 let's, uh, let's run away. Yeah, so that left me uncomfortable, but that's how it is. You know, when you do this kind of work, you experience uh, all kind of stuff. You know, so... I got stuck in a flooded road in India once, which was interesting because it was a big monsoon and you could see there was a, a dent in the road, sort of a hundred meter long sort of depression. And that was full of water and you could not see how deep the water was, you know. So on the other side of the road, you could see half of the village already watching what all this <laughs> what was going to happen. <laughs> so, and I understood later why. So, so my driver stopped. He took the cables of the battery uh, thoughtfully, you know. Mm -hmm. It was an Indian ambassador car, which is modeled after an old British car. There's pretty high clearance, you know. Mm. So and then he backed up about 50 or 100 meters and then with full speed drove into this water, uh, so thinking that we would make it through. So halfway through, 
the engine stopped and the water came into the car. We were stuck, you know, so I could just pull myself up, my suitcase up, and then the water was about this high. So, and then that's when the village people came over from the other side and asked for money to push us out. <laughs> <laughs> so they pushed us out, and sure enough, you know, the water drained off the car, the driver opens the hood, puts the cables back on the battery, cart will start, and off we go. You know, so wow. Yes, uh, wow. I don't think you can, can do this with modern cars. <laughs> I also don't think I'll try that in a Rothamsted pool car either. I don't think that no. would be inappropriate. No, we wouldn't appreciate this either. Yeah. No, that's, uh, you, you, you experience funny things. Yeah, so. Plenty. It's time for the rapid fire questions. It's time to ask some questions really, really fast. So we have a rapid-fire question round. <laughs> All of the big questions. These are very important questions. Okay, ready? Yes. Football or rugby? Football, always. Always. Yeah. Beatles or Stones? Foreign or Stones. Oh, okay. Mm. Sit in a strategic institute funding meeting with government investors or chairing an employee meeting? Neither of them is that enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll probably go with the employee meetings too. Yeah. Okay. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Desert Island Discs or Life Scientifique? Which, given your conversation about... Desert Island um, Discs. Yeah. Desert Island Discs, I like. Real Housewives of Atlanta or Love Island? Neither of them. I don't <laughs> Don't watch any of this crap. <laughs> Don't have the time for that. <laughs> Going out on a science communication event to a primary school or writing an institute's annual review to the board? I know that I have to do both. I haven't done enough of the primary schools. So if I could now, I would do more of that, yes. Oh, okay. Very nice. Last one. Last film that made you cry. Ooh. <laughs> I watch so many films. I watch probably about, you know, on an annual basis, probably about 150 or 200. Wow. So, Quite the cinephile. Yeah. I don't remember them. God, am I even... Too much, you know. So they, because some, there's so many that make you cry somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So, but I do watch a lot, um, um, largely, I mean, I've got quite a collection sort of from the 1930s to the, you know, now, oh. yeah, but I'm more into the older ones, so the, the 50s and 60s and uh, when the world was still a pretty good place and the language <laughs> and oh. movies was proper and yeah. not the sort of swearing and uh, you could actually <laughs> understand what they were saying yeah. and, you know, yeah, the plots were pretty clear, you know, so... So, yeah, no, movies are a big part of my life, actually. They have become in recent years more, yeah. And I watch them in many languages. I always make it a point to watch mm. them in the original language and with subtitles because that's much better. You know, so. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's, uh, that's good. Jerry says this. Hammer says that. What does Hammer say? I've really been enjoying this chat, but I think we should move on to the next session now. The other topic I wanted to talk about is we've talked about challenges in, in feeding the world uh, in terms of the real challenges, intensification, how we're going to solve these issues on farm. But one of the other things you mentioned 
Well, you previously wrote about uh, nitrogen and the nitrogen cycle and how so much has been... It's, this is kind of a topic we, we don't know enough about. We need to do more research, but lots has been done in the last um, 15 years. But you wrote uh, that uh, knowledge about the nitrogen cycle has risen exponentially in the last 20 years. Thousands of scientific papers and reports on many aspects have been are published every year. Uh, yet, on a global scale, we've, we seem to have made insufficient progress. Um and previously, we, we we talked about the difficulty in kind of science not always translating into real world applications. I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on how much of a challenge that is, and what are the causes of that challenge, and what could be done, what needs to be done going forward to make sure that science makes it yeah. out into the world. Yeah, this is actually a very good example. It's also one that then I've been one way or another involved with throughout my career. So nutrients or nitrogen, and of course, being a big part of that. And, and just sort of to illustrate, I mean, we we now, on a global scale, uh, consume over a hundred million tons of nitrogen in the form of fertilizers, you know, so mm. that has risen substantially. But what we've actually created is a massive global imbalance. So we apply too much of it still in many parts of the northern and western world, whereas we have too little of it uh, in Africa and other parts of the developing world. You know, so. So we know that in the future, um, on a global scale, we must uh, decouple any kind of future agricultural production growth from the further growth in fertilizer consumption. Mm. So that's a, a, it's a massive challenge because it also means the industry that makes money with fertilizers needs to change their business model. And if you cannot convince them to buy into this philosophy, it's not going to happen, you know, because uh, they need to essentially shift to a business model that is less volume, but more value, more knowledge embedded uh, along with the fertilizer, mm. not just more of the same. Uh, and, and particularly more of the scientific knowledge and innovation and, and the industry support systems need to shift from the northern world to the southern world, you know where the stuff is really needed, you know, and Africa being the number one challenge, you know. So it's not just about moving more fertilizer to Africa, but also the entire uh, sort of science-based, evidence-based knowledge system along with that. Is, uh, is the knowledge already there to manage this sustainably, but it's just not translating? I think by and large, the, in, in research, uh, we know what the good management practices are mm. in terms of okay, how, how you should uh, uh, grow a crop in that case mm. with uh, making sure that you get a high yield, uh, get a, get, get a, that you're going to get a high yield and uh, at the same time also a high efficiency of the fertilizer that you apply. You know, so we know that um, under good conditions we can get about 80% efficiency of the fertilizer, whereas in many farmers' fields or as a global average is probably between 30 to 40%. Mm. You know, yeah, so, so that's the translation gap, if you wish, for me. You know. Now, nitrogen is a fickle thing. It's never perfect because uh, you know, it's very mobile and your climate affects it, and so you can never aim to say we're going to get 100% efficiency that's never going to be the case mm. your crop is um, affected by many other things too yeah? but if we could move that average up from 30 or 40% to 50 or 60% it would make a massive difference you know, on a global scale uh, but also for individual farmers who are suboptimal you know? so for that 
move, that initial move, I think we have a lot of the science uh, or the knowledge needed. Uh, it's more of a question of uh, uh, take, you know, um, putting it into the right uh, means uh, so that farmers can easily use it, you know. And there I think we make often the mistake that a lot of the science we do is very supply-driven. Uh, so we come up with something or a new software app or whatever, and, and we assume that oh, this is going to be so obvious that the farmer is just going to be jumping up and down and <laughs> yeah. use it. You know? mm. That's not how it works. You know? so I think for us, we need to be in science a lot more humble and actually earlier on work with farmers or others in the supply chain, not just farmers, you know, to make sure that what we're doing is actually usable by them you know, or, or useful, you know. Mm. So, the, so it's not just about the quality of the scientific invention or innovation, it's also about the operability. Mm. I call it the operability, you know. Can it actually be done, you know. And so one advice that I always have to scientists is, okay, if you've come up with something you think is the greatest thing in the world, try it out yourself first. <laughs> Take a bloody field and do it yourself, you know. And then you will see whether it works or not. You yeah. know? And I've seen too many things, and I've tried quite a few myself. I, I used to have a rice field at Erie in which I tried to use uh, all of the things that our scientists were recommending to farmers. You know, half of them worked, half of them just, well, just I couldn't make them work. Mm -hmm. you know? And I was supposed to be the chief of science at Erie, and I should know it, you know. Yeah, so I couldn't make it work. You know? so, so that's, I think, where we think what I think the scientific approach needs to change. You know? So how does that kind of fit in with the publish or perish? So the kind of idea that as a scientist you get ranked on your academic publications because I spend a lot of time in a farmer's mm. field. That means that then I'm not sat at my desk doing the statistical analysis and, and writing it up. Yeah. How how does that fit into that? Model? No, this mm. is a very important point. I think the, the incentive system in science, particularly in agricultural science, needs to change. And um, that a lot, a lot of people are saying this, you know, but not a lot has actually been done about it. Yeah? And it needs to start uh, with two things. One is the the how funding for science is allocated, on how grant proposals are selected or not selected. You know? yeah. And the second thing is the promotion criteria for scientists. You know? These go hand in hand. You know, as long as uh, organizations. Uh, who are responsible for these things are putting primary weight on the what is called the scientific excellence, which is actually, by the way, very hard to define what that actually mm -hmm. means. You know, then we have a culture of publish or perish, and you know, you go from one journal paper to another, which then the usual conclusion of the journal paper is, well, we have to do more research to start to understand <laughs> this better. So that then is a justification to win you another grant on the same criteria which then uh, allows you to do a bit more work and you publish the next series of papers after a while you have enough of this kind to get promoted so you can actually make a successful academic career of this kind without ever actually spending your time in the farmer's field or doing that so in my view the uh, the incentive system needs to change institutions like Rosenstedt can play a significant role um, i've tried this uh, not completely succeeded yet i think to have internally at least the right kind of mechanism to support uh, people uh, in a more balanced approach to science, including work in in the field, you know. 
and also then recognize this properly when it comes to our internal uh, annual performance evaluation or promotion or whatever. But if the external agencies, particularly the funding agencies, don't go along with this, uh, it's very difficult to convince people. Uh, I've had this often in Rawson that people would say, the director wants us to work more with farmers, you know. Mm -hmm. But there's no nobody gives us money for this, you know, or we, we can't you know, do it for whatever reasons. You know, I understand that, you know. So, but I think for many scientific areas, it's essential to do this. And I actually do believe that you, even in using farmers' fields as an experimental unit, you can still do very good science. So I can proudly say that in my own scientific career, I've never conducted a greenhouse experiment. Almost all my work has been either in field experiments or in farmers' fields, and mm. using those as a data source. You know. That it's much harder, and there are failures. You know. And it also tends to cost more money, and that's why many people don't do it. You know, And more time, you have to, you have to go to these farmers and... And fields, uh, so you're literally just describing my summer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's hard work, and uh, I got into this philosophy because uh, my PhD was very different, and I don't think you the people could do it nowadays that easily. I disappeared for two years into a village in Russia, and did nothing. I was completely cut off from the rest of the world because that, uh, there was no telephone, there was no internet in those days, of the late eighties. So. So I could only communicate by writing letters. My One of my supervisors was 2,000 kilometers away, the other one was nearly 4,000 kilometers away. So you could write a letter, in, but the earliest you could hope for an answer was about five weeks, you know. Mm. So, so, you, so I spent two years essentially for my PhD doing nothing else than standing in one rice field measuring everything that I could imagine. It was a, a commercial rice field of three and a half hectares of site. You know? So I've accumulated a massive amount of data, soil and the water and the plants and the variability and whatever, you know, so. And I've never had that kind of quality period in my whole life again where I spent so much time thinking about something, you know, mm -hmm. in the field, you know. And it was still good enough to do a PhD. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but it was hard work, you know, uh, hard work. And yeah, so I can only encourage more people to do this. It was great fun too. <laughs> So here's a list of words, the thousand most common words, and we've asked all of our guests so far. So take a, a few minutes just to look at these and try to sum up a short <coughs> sentence that describes your work. We, we appreciate this is probably much this more is... difficult for you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever word is not on the list. You just got to improvise around, around it. Around yeah. it. <laughs> That's where trouble air comes bad air. Or say it a lot so it makes it onto the second version of the thousand most common words. <laughs> So your sentence is? My sentence is, we will do good. <laughs> <laughs> could we, I think there's a few we could have, we will do good with the food trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Do you want to um, wrap us up? Yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you're happy with your, your sentence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's a positive sentence. Mm. Yeah. Well, th thank you very much for coming and having a chat with us. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Not just geographically, but conversationally. Mm. Yeah, so that's it for another episode of uh, The Science of Feeding the World. Join us next time where we will talk about more science of feeding the world. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. <Yeah. laughs> Thanks for listening to The Science of Feeding the World podcast. We would like it very much if you would like, subscribe and share. And if you want to get in 
touch you can get us on twitter at sfdw podcast or if you just search for the science of feeding the world on instagram or facebook you'll get us there as well